What did COVID-19 lockdown, a loose screw, and the pioneering aviator Glenn Martin have to do with Muskegon, Michigan? Stick around and we're going to find out. My name is Wendy Van Workham and I am a programming assistant at the Lakeshore Museum Center. Today on the Muskegon History and Beyond podcast, I will be taking you on an adventure in the infancy of flight and how Muskegon played a role as a very brief pit stop in that story. Now, I have to be really honest with you guys, this was not at all the podcast that I intended to write. But sometime during our COVID-19 lockdown, I went down an unanticipated side road, and I don't think you'll be disappointed with what I found. While exploring our collections database, looking for beach pictures for another project, I found some great images of a hydroplane on Lake Michigan and on Muskegon Lake. I was able to click on the description, find out whose plane it was and when it was in Muskegon, and then I went to Genealogy Bank. Uh, This is an online subscription uh, platform and it can search newspaper articles from across the country, and I actually found a Muskegon Chronicle article that had to do with the pictures. And as it turned out, Glenn Martin, the owner of the airplane, was on a aeroboat race from Chicago to Detroit. And his plane had issues outside of Muskegon and he had to land on the water and was towed into Muskegon Lake where he spent two days fixing his airplane. Cool, right? Now, what if I had told you that Glenn Martin had built the airplane himself? And what if I told you that these demonstration flights that he did while he was in Muskegon were the first flights in Muskegon ever? But before we get into that story, we kind of have to ask the question of why the race was even held in Midwest and why Martin, a Californian, got involved in it in the first place. So men and women really have been interested in flight and fascinated by the heavens for a really long time. On November 21, 1783, the first manned and untethered balloon flight happened in Paris. Now, through the years, balloon flights continued to happen after this, but no matter how much people tweaked or tinkered with balloon design, balloon pilots still never really had much control about where they went. But all that changed in 1903 and Kitty Hawk, when, on December 17, the Wright brothers' craft stayed airborne for a few seconds. This was the first powered and heavier-than-air flight in the world. And after this, aviation fever took over. Chicago became a hotbed of aviation due to a number of interested and financially well-off people. Also, it became a hotbed due to the World's Fair in 1893 because in conjunction with the World's Fair, a conference on aerial navigation was held. During that event, Alexander Graham Bell actually said that the flying machine would be an accomplished fact before the end of the century and at the most before the end of 10 years. His prediction was pretty accurate. Outside of Chicago at Cicero in 1909, another important thing happened. Glenn Curtis, a airplane manufacturer and inventor, hosted an exhibition. It was a two-day event with lots of flights, and Curtis during this time also suggested to the Automotive Club of Illinois that they form an aero club, which happened in February of the next year. Out on the West Coast, while Chicago's flight scene was heating up, so was the one in Los Angeles. And that is where Glenn Martin attended his first aviation meet in 1909. 
and from there he was bitten by the flight bug. He committed to building his own plane, and by 1910 he had taken flight in that plane. Prior to that, he had been in the automotive business. Now, back in Chicago in 1911, Cicero Flying Field was created and opened in July. From there on, between 1911 and 1916, the aviation season started every year on Decoration Day, which is Memorial Day, for those of you familiar with your history, and it lasted until Labor Day in September. By 1912, Martin had incorporated his plane building company, and at the age of 26, he broke an overwater flight record with his 66-mile flight to Avalon Harbor on Catalina Island from Balboa Bay, Newport Bay, California, in a seaplane he built himself called the Avalon Zipper. In another Michigan connection, the 15-horsepower engine on that plane had been donated to Martin by Henry Ford himself. By September 24, 1912, we see a mention of Glenn Martin in the Muskegon Chronicle. He had taken part in a meet at Cicero Flying Field on the 14th of that month, and he was the one who won the most money as a competitor at $4,854. Now, here we're getting close to where Glenn ends up in Muskegon. Martin had become known as the Flying Dude. I mentioned he had incorporated his business, he had a factory, he also had a flying school. One of his early students and customers was William Boeing, who went on to found the Boeing Company. And interestingly enough, in another Michigan connection, William Boeing was born in Detroit, even though he went on to live on the West Coast. The Illinois Aero Club published a magazine weekly called Aero and Hydro. And in it, they start to mention, in 1913, the Great Lakes Reliability Cruise, which was going to be a race that they hosted that was over water by hydroplanes from Chicago to Detroit. A couple of updates in the year that that race was going to happen are as follows. On May 10, naval aviators were allowed to enter the race as non-participants. They couldn't participate and go for the money because of the fact that they weren't plane manufacturers, but they could participate. At that time, eight entrants representing the companies of Benoit, Walco, Harriman, Curtis, and Cook were in the running. Benoit had three aviators and three planes. Curtis had two aviators and two planes being represented. Also, checkpoints were being named, Bay City being one of them. Their interurban line was expecting to carry as many as 25,000 people on the arrival and departure days of the aviators during the flight. May 31, 1913, announced that a silver trophy was being built that was two feet high and eight inches wide. At this point, we know there were 11 entries. June 21, 1913, we know that they were expecting three more entries, and the article also notes that eight of 12 entries were being made ready for transport to Chicago. Now, you might think that people were going to fly their planes to Chicago, but it was actually not uncommon for them to come by railroad. It also states that July 1 was the drop-dead date for entries to be ready, and the fact that these new craft, which were half airplane and half boat, had never been seen in the waters in this vicinity, despite the fact that they have been flown thousands of times in other parts of the country. Now, this is because at this point that the race took place, the hydroplane had only been around for about a year, so these were very new planes. The July 5 edition of the magazine introduced the competitors. And finally, July 12, 1913, there were several articles about the race. And the really fun one has to do with some events that happened before the race. 
So before the race, everyone was kind of going around, looking, checking out the planes and commenting on the planes. And in Aero and Hydro, they gave a great description of the plane that was owned by Verplank and piloted by Havens. It was the heaviest one in the cruise, and this is the description. This entry, the heaviest in the cruise, is also the most completely equipped, having dual ignition, electric lights, provisions, tools, and spares, and all sorts of gym cracks that are generally absent on an aeroplane. But this added weight did not appear to affect the flying qualities of the comfortable looking craft, which is big enough to sleep in. So what is a gym crack, you asked? Well, I Googled it, and thankfully, Google was able to find a Webster's 1913 edition dictionary, and the definition is something that is cheap or tasteless, uh, showy, of little use. So it sounds like Aaron Hydro was being a little insulting of the Havens and Verplanic craft, and it also sounds like those things were what we might refer to today as bells and whistles on the airplane. On Thursday, July 3, Martin surprised everyone on his first flight with his great speed, quote unquote. Um, then on Friday, he seems to have been a little bit of a showman. He wowed the crowds, it said, by at the Chicago Yacht Club by flying within 15 feet of the clubhouse. He then, it sounds like, zipped in between the parked yachts and got up into the air with a great rush, they said. So it sounds like he had a promising start, right? But then on Monday, the 7th, disaster struck. He was competing in the efficiency competition of the trophy and he was flying too close to the water at full speed and he caught the toe of his pontoon and it actually caused him to keel over and rip the front compartment off the pontoon and it flung he and day into the water. Um, both aviators walked away with just kind of bumps and bruises, but his machine had to be towed ashore and it had to be reassembled and repaired. Uh, now, early flight was a lot of co-opetition, right? People were trying to figure things out, even though they might be in competition with each other. So the Benoit team actually sent over five men to help fix the plane. And then numerous aviators from the Cicero flying field also came into the city to help fix Martin's plane. So the next day was Tuesday, July 8th, and it was actually the start of the race. However, there were some really high winds, and this caused the starters, the pilots, to not be able to hear the starting gun. Uh, so they actually took off 15 minutes after the start of the race. Janice was the first pilot to take off, and it was a reported 20,000 strong crowd that cheered on his flight and takeoff. Verplenick and Haven got off next without a hitch, too. But the third flyer, Johnson, his pilot, or sorry, his plane refused to take off. So after three tries, he had to drop off his passenger in order to lose some weight, and then he was able to make it into the air. The fourth flyer, Francis, actually wasn't able to take off because of a storm. And another pilot we know, Villas, he was late getting to Chicago at all because he had a diphtheric sore throat, and he was ordered three days rest by the doctors. Um, as it happened, I can't find any record of Villas actually competing or taking off to join the competition. So I'm guessing this illness took him out of it completely. Unfortunately, Martin's plane was still not repaired from his crash the previous day. The first checkpoint was Michigan City, but Janice, the first pilot, he didn't make it. After having engine trouble, he ended up adrift in a lake outside Gary, Indiana. 
Havens and Verplanek saw him, stopped and checked on him, but Janice told them to move on. He thought they were going to stop in Gary, Indiana and send a boat back, but they didn't. They made their way to Michigan City and checked in at the checkpoint. As it happens, a great big sand barge came upon Janice and towed him and was planning to tow him to shore, but some of the hauling hardware failed on the boat and it ended up being set adrift during the storm and then thrown about. Now Johnson, the last one to take off, he really got caught in the storm and he was forced to the ground in Robertsdale. The problem being, no one knew where he was. So in Michigan City, members of the press corps and other rescuers actually went out on Lake Michigan in this storm, which they said was one of the worst July storms in recent history, to go find him. Thankfully, he was safe and all the rescuers returned to shore safely as well. Now, if you're wondering how Havens and Verplenik knew that Janice was in trouble, it's because all the competitors had agreed upon a signaling system ahead of the race. If you were on the water and you were fine and just taking a break, you'd fly the stars and stripes with the stars upright as per normal. If you were in trouble, you would flip the flag with the stars at the bottom so that people would know you were in trouble. And that's what Havens saw and what caused him to stop. If you had trouble at night, they were actually issued Roman candles. The winds were strong um, in Michigan City, where Haven's boat was, uh, so strong that it actually tipped the plane up on its wingtip and it broke the rudder, um, so that had to be repaired. Day two of the race, Wednesday, July 9, dawned with sun and strong winds. Havens and Verplenik were headed for Makatawa, which is Holland. Now, they had an issue getting off the ground. It sounds like the fuel was too heavy and it was of a poor quality, so they changed the amount from 30 gallons to 20 and the type to uh, from motor spirits to white rose gasoline, and it seemed to have solved the problem and, and they were able to get off on their way. Back in Chicago, another pilot, Francis, was trying to get off the ground, but he had issues with his engine getting too much oil and causing it to misfire. He had to land, get the excess oil out, clean his spark plugs, and then he was able to take off and get to Michigan City, and he eventually met Verplanik and Havens in South Haven. And I love this part of the story because it really shows you just how finicky these early aircraft were and just how many different adjustments and fixes and things like that you had to do to keep them airworthy. The third day of the race, all the flyers were grounded because of high winds. And on the fourth day, July 11, Martin was finally able to leave Chicago. He was so eager to catch up to the leaders. From Michigan City to Makatawa, he actually set a time and speed record for a hydro in the country at that time. He made an 84-mile flight in 75 minutes. He left Makatawa and he was headed up to Manistee, but he had technical difficulties and that's what brought him to Lake Harbor, Muskegon. Even though he didn't catch the leaders, he did set a record, a record for mileage in one day um, that day. He traveled 162 miles on his first day of the competition. Uh, the issue that caused him to, to land, I guess, outside Muskegon was that a thumb screw had shaken loose in his carburetor and when it came loose it actually dropped a spring so they had a dead engine and had to glide 700 feet in to land on the water and then his passenger day kind of fashioned a makeshift solution to get them to the beach and then they were hauled over into Muskegon Lake from there. Uh, both Francis and Havens were up in Pentwater at this point but they got caught in yet another storm and their boats were blown around on the beach and they ended up breaking and they had a two-day delay waiting for spare flippers and ribs to be shipped to Pentwater. And the description of Pentwater and Arrow and Hydra is great. They referred to it as the inconvenient location. So at this point, 
Our report picks up with an article in the Muskegon Chronicle on Monday, July 14. And it states that Francis was in Pentwater and that he was saying he couldn't continue the competition due to engine trouble. And we know that on the 14th, Havens and Verplanek were in, I believe it was Charlevoix. Now, it also says that at 12.30, after spending two days in the city, the city being Muskegon, that Martin safely left for Pentwater. And then at the very end of the article, it has this fun little mention. Is first flight here. For the first time, the residents of Muskegon saw an aircraft float over a portion of the city, for Glenn Martin was the first aviator, either land or water, ever to st even stage an exhibition flight here. Both Havens and Francis flew over the piers at Lake Michigan Park on their way north Friday, but neither entered the channel and came into Muskegon Lake. Martin made a pretty getaway today. Repeatedly, all the aviators in the race, in the Chronicle and other newspapers, were referred to as birdmen. We know that during his stay, the plane was towed to the beach directly across um, or opposite from the tennis courts at the country club, and that following the repairs made to the plane, Martin went up and did a 20-minute exhibition flight around the yacht club and the country club. And the comment in the article was that he was a very good flyer and that those who were able to see the exhibition flight should consider themselves lucky to have seen it. Uh, while in Muskegon, Martin stayed in the Occidental Hotel. There's no mention in the article of where Day stayed, but we can guess that it was probably the same spot. On July 14, as we said, both Francis and Martin were in Pentwater. Francis's boat was being packed for transportation, and it seemed that Martin was out of the competition. On July 15, Havens and Verplanek made it to Sheboygan. From there, they would head out on the longest overwater leg of their journey at 103 miles to Alpena. After they reached Alpena, they were off to Tawas, but they actually made it to Bay Meadow Farm. And the reason they got there was because they saw a bonfire and it was almost dark and so they decided to land. On the 16th, they made it to Bay City, but they were plagued with another nasty storm and so they decided to stay put. Then finally, on the 17th, we get a really impressive and harrowing story. Um, the conditions weren't great for flying, but they decided to go up anyways, and they started down Saginaw Bay, and yet another storm came up, and this is how Havens described it in the Detroit Free Press. We witnessed the most beautiful scene I ever saw, said Havens, in describing his por this portion of the trip. We left Bay City, and a big storm was brewing, and as it gathered, we pointed the boat's nose up and got above it. Below us, we could see the rolling clouds and flashes of lightning, but the water and the ground were completely hidden as though by a great black curtain. Above us was the sun, so that we knew which direction the earth must be. The variable air currents rocked us like a, and the boat plunged like a small craft on a rough sea. Below us seemed nothing but darkness except for the flashes of lightning indicating a storm, and above us, the sun beat down mercilessly. We did not seem to be moving at all, although the hum of the motor indicated that we were going at a rate of a mile a minute. But that's the way it seems, though, up in the air. You can't tell whether you're moving or not unless you can see an object which is not moving, and up there, there was nothing but sun and sky. Finally, all of a sudden, the motor stopped. This meant a plunge down through the storm with a dead engine. We started, but where we were going to bring up, we didn't know. 
I shouted to Verplenik. Verplenik shouted to me. Neither of us heard the other in the roar of the storm. We went down into that black blanket as though shot out of a gun. Lightning flashed all around us in the rain. It was as though we were making a submarine trip. I had no idea where we were, though I had a notion which direction land was. So I steered the machine in a circle and out towards where I thought the lake must be. Lightning flashed all about us and the crack of thunder added to the roar of the wind. By the way, when you get that close to thunder, it sounds pretty loud. Finally, we go through the thunderclouds and saw we were over the water and we came down beautifully. I got ashore and set out in search of the gas. I walked three to four miles across the barren hills, hired a farmer to drive me in his wagon to Port Austin, where I got some gasoline and rode back with him. Then I had to hire a rowboat, an old leaky tub, and I rode this three to four miles back to wherever Planick was waiting with the machine. That was harder work than the whole trip from Chicago in the air. We then loaded up and got to Port Salinac in good shape. So here we have a bit of gap in the reporting, but we know that the airmen arrived in Detroit to land at the beach of the Detroit Motorboat Club on July 18 at 4.06 p.m. It had taken a total of 10 days, but only 15 actual hours of flying time to get from Chicago to Detroit. You would have thought that they would have zipped into the finish line at high speed. However, they were a little confused about the donate, uh, the location rather of the Detroit Motorboat Club. And so they got a little lost and they were getting low on gas. So they had to cut their airspeed to 20 miles an hour in order to conserve what little gas they had. So they didn't have to kind of suffer the indignity of being towed into the beach. According to the July 19, 1913 edition of the Grand Rapids Press, Havens and Verplanik had established a world record with the flight being three times longer than any similar flight over water, not counting the distance that they were lost. The press also recorded a 33% finish rate for the race. That's right, folks. One of three competitors actually finished the race. This is the point at which I remind you that when we started this whole story, there were 12 entrants. So we know what happened to some of them. Martin, Francis, they had issues with their plane. Janice also had issues with his plane, but the articles don't really tell us what happened to the rest of the competitors. Now, the press article did say, when you consider that flying boats are only about a year old, this 33% completion rate is a wonderful record. Even though Martin didn't win the race, his stop here in Muskegon introduced residents to the age of the aeroplane in person for the first time. So following the reliability cruise, Martin established an office for his company in Chicago for a brief time. Then in 1918, he moved his company to Cleveland, Ohio. In 1928, it moved again into Maryland. And then in 1961, it completed the first of two mergers to become Martin Marietta. And in 1995, it merged to become Lockheed Martin Corporation. Martin himself died on December 5 of 1955 in Baltimore, Maryland of a stroke. I have a few end notes about this podcast. I, I really have to say that this is one of the funnest things that I've researched in a long time. I went down a number of rabbit holes uh, that I didn't intend to, and I'm going to share one of them with you because it's very, very cool. On June 21, 1913, Glenn Martin piloted the plane that Tiny Broadwick jumped out of with a parachute. She was the first woman to jump from a plane, and the first man did it only about a year ahead of her. 
Martin took her up again on August 24 in Chicago in 1913 when she jumped again. Later in 1914, she came back to the Midwest and made her first jump into Lake Michigan, which she became the first woman to jump into a body of water. She was also, incidentally, the first person to complete a free fall. However, it wasn't intentional and therefore she doesn't get recorded as the first person to do so. What had happened was her static parachute line that was attached to the plane and pulled her chute out got wrapped around the tail of the plane she was jumping out of. Now, she had already jumped at this point and the line was tangled and she was stuck. Instead of panicking, she cut the rope and then later pulled the shorter rope to deploy her parachute manually. Now, if you are interested in learning more about early aviation, I strongly urge you to check out the editions of Aero and Hydro that have been digitized and are available through the Hathi Trust Digital Library. You can also see them on Google Books and you can even order a reprinted version of the um, weekly magazine through Amazon. Now, even though this weekly magazine was published by the Aero Club of Illinois, it actually has aviation news from across the country and around the world. And you guys, it was so much fun to read and so interesting. And I am not even an airplane junkie. Now, you can also learn more about early aviation in Muskegon by checking out our podcast on Cecil Sinclair, who was one of the early aviators here in Muskegon. Now, finally, in researching this article, you really get the idea that there were two types of flyers. Those who were kind of addicted and obsessed with it, and those who were just kind of fascinated, could afford it, and supported it um, as kind of like patrons. It also, the researching of this podcast, really made me realize how much we take the safety of flying for granted today. There were a number of crashes, right? So in one, a woman's skirt got caught around a steering lever, caused the plane to crash. Uh, The September 1912 race, we hear about Martin winning. There were five other aviators mentioned in that article. By 1916, two of those other aviators had died in plane crashes. Hugh Robinson crashed 15 times in his career and survived all the crashes, and we know Martin crashed at least once. These pioneers in aviation went up into the sky at great risk to themselves and to their investments in flying technology. So to say that you would have to love it would really be an understatement. I've got two quotes from both one from Tiny Broadwick and then one from another pilot from World War II that kind of sum up people's fascination with flying. Tiny Broadwick said, I breathe so much better up there, and it is so peaceful being that near God. And then John Gillespie McGee, the World War II pilot, wrote a poem called High Flight, and this is just one passage. You have not dreamed of, wheeled and soared and swung, high in the sunlit silence, hovering there. I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through the footless halls of air. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Muskegon History and Beyond. Next time you see a plane in the sky, think of all those early aviators like Martin who made it all possible. Uh,